is happening now. We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard are in the newsroom. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine is in the cloud. The week has barely started, and it's already half over. You gotta love a long weekend. Here's Scott Thompson. Never thought of it that way. I'll take it. I will take it. Uh, good afternoon. It is 3.08. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. It's 900 CHML. Will Weber on the board and in the newsroom. Uh, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard watching the world spin. Yes, uh, another jam-packed show for you. Obviously, the big story of the day is uh, Ukraine and what is happening along the Russia-Ukraine border. Yesterday, uh, Russia said that it was recognizing uh, two breakaway regions, as it called it, uh, uh, separatist regions. Um, not sure if uh, they were in had a, had a say in any of that, but uh, obviously that has people uh, very concerned in the free world, simply because that's the way uh, they literally took Crimea. So, uh, very very uh, cautiously watching what is happening in uh, the Ukraine today, and specifically uh, what the United States is saying that the Russia invasion of uh, Ukraine is imminent. They've uh, removed staff from embassies and such, so it's um, it, it's not a good situation. Although, that being said, they say the negotiations are still going on. As the experts said that we had on yesterday, uh, Biden already said he would not send in military uh, help or uh, send in the military, per se, although we'll try to support the allies uh, and those neighboring states as best they can. Uh, because obviously uh, Ukraine is not a member of NATO at this point. So perhaps that has uh, emboldened uh, Vladimir Putin. Uh, but uh, now the U.S. says it is uh, imminent of a Russian invasion of Ukraine. I, I guess we all just sit and watch. I I'm not sure what the plan is for the rest of the world uh, and how far this has to go before action is taken. But obviously, uh, something that the world is focused on now. And uh, we'll keep you up to date on that story throughout the course of the afternoon and as well uh, have guests on this coming up uh, a little later on. All right, lots to talk about over the course of the afternoon and uh, coming up also this hour, uh, the second of a three-part series exploring uh, exploring Ontario's strategy to combat human trafficking and sex trafficking. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on this hour. Also announced yesterday, uh, Gary Brooker, Procol Harum, had passed away at age 76. We'll talk to Eric Alper about that and the Canadian connection uh, to uh, one of their big hits which, uh, you know, it was one of those bands that had one or two big hits, and uh, boy, that's all they needed. Uh, the rest is history, as they say. Also, interesting news coming out of the Olympics in that um, uh, the, the ratings were down, way down from the last Winter Olympics uh, by as much as 40 46%. And uh, although they did see increases in streaming, uh, it, that's just the technology, and they were very, very minimal. And 
certainly not enough to make up for what they had lost. So it'll be an interesting discussion as we move forward because the IOC um, still, uh, uh, I guess, holds this gem up quite high, this jewel, that this is something that every city wants to be a part of. And we've certainly seen in North America and through Europe that, um, you know, it's just way too much money. It's not worth it anymore. And uh, it seems that uh, authoritarian or, or, or such states are, are the ones that are keeping the IOC afloat and paying all the money uh, in, in order to bid on future games. Uh, NBC Universal attracted its smallest primetime audience since they started carrying the game. So uh, not a good Olympics as far as television, it's, it's, uh, you know, or any viewing for that matter. And is that because we're, you know, in the end of a global pandemic? Is it because of the Beijing and China connection and the Chinese uh, Communist Party, and 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 obviously uh, what's going on over there and 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 the West's view of China now? Not sure what it is, uh, but we'll talk about that coming up uh, a little later on. Also, the Emergency Act, the Emergencies Act, which was declared in order to uh, get something done in Ottawa. Um, <laughs> uh, it seemed that that's what it took to to get everybody rowing in the same direction. Not sure still why that is the case. Uh, but that being said, uh, it was debated in the House of Commons on Monday and, of course, passed with uh, the NDP propping up the Liberal government. And now the Canadian Senate is taking its sweet time uh, in debating this, and uh, many not happy uh, that the Emergencies Act was was called, and they are looking for more information and more uh, uh, proof as to why it would it was needed uh, in the first place. And uh, they say that that's all secret. The Senate says that's not good enough for them. So that debate continues. Also, Ontario Premier Doug Ford is looking into his long-promised gas tax. Also, the stickers. Uh, on license plates, and uh, you know, I was uh, driving out east on the 407, and they have uh, dropped the tolls. There's two main roads that feed the uh, 407 from the 401 out through Oshawa and Whitby, and these were obviously roads to to get people to go off the 401 and go up to the 407. But then they told them, <laughs> but it's not the it's not the private company that owns the 407. This is going was going to you know the past government. So uh, why build highways up to a toll road and then charge people to even get to the toll road is a little over the top. The premier says those are uh, gone as well uh, coming up in April. Sometimes you just got to uh, you know go to the birds. You just got to fly away and uh, look at the world from a different perspective. Uh, as we did a few weeks ago when we were talking about the Falcon situation on uh, at the Sheridan. In- in various high-rises downtown Hamilton. Uh, and, and years ago, I remember when uh, that all first started and people, uh, you know, mounting cameras and and so on and so forth. And, of course, we heard the story of the Circle of Life uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, on how we lost one, but then was replaced quite quickly uh, in, um, you know, the mating cycle of life and such. So when this story came up, I thought, you know, this is uh, something to take our mind away from COVID and, and all the other crap that's going on. And uh, and think about something that we could do for the city and specifically around birds and those things that fly around. Uh, bird-friendly Hamilton Burlington is holding a vote to decide which bird should be the city's official bird. Maybe it should be the crane, considering all the building we're seeing going on. 
There's at least a couple of those in the sky at any given time. Uh, let's bring in Barry Coombs, founder of uh, founding, uh, or sorry, founding co-chair of the team Bird Friendly Hamilton Burlington, and is with us now. Barry, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am, and thanks for having me. So, tell us about Bird Friendly Hamilton Burlington. What is it? Bird Friendly Hamilton Burlington is a project from Nature Canada. Our goal as a team is to have Hamilton and also Burlington certified as bird-friendly cities. And what will make Hamilton, Burlington uh, bird-friendly cities? How do you get that designation? Well, we have a long list of criteria that we have to meet. Unfortunately, uh, many of the uh, items have been provided for us by some of our uh, supporters, like the Hamilton Naturalist Club and Environment Hamilton and Burlington Green. But we have to look at things like uh, making the city safe at night during migration by having a lights out program to keep birds from colliding with windows Mm. and hopefully introducing some bird friendly measures into new construction so they don't fly into buildings at any time of day. How do you do that, Barry, with uh, new buildings? Well, that's one of our biggest challenges. The last I checked with the Hamilton Planning Department, they were working on new site planning guidelines Uh, for the city, but we haven't had an update in quite some while. Uh, I can mention that at the Ontario level, uh, MPP Chris Glover from uh, Spadina, Fort York in Toronto has initiated initiated a motion to have bird-friendly measures adopted in the Ontario Building Code. So what can you do to the average building to to help and and make it more bird-friendly? Can you give us any examples? Absolutely. The simplest thing of all are window treatments. They're like little docks. They're manufactured by a company called Feather Friendly, which is a partner of ours. And these little docks go on your window and it it breaks up the window pattern so that the birds can recognize that there's glass there and they Mm -hmm. will not fly into it. Meanwhile, from the interior, the human eye adapts to them quite well and doesn't really notice the dots or perceive the dots when you're looking out your window. And how big a issue? How big of an issue is this with birds flying into high rises? It must be huge. It is, and the numbers across North America could be minimum a hundred million a year. Believe it or not, uh, wow. dying by crashing into buildings at night and also in the daytime. And uh, low, the actual uh, high rises are a problem, depending on the ones that are coated in glass. But most collisions occur, I believe, up to about three stories high. Really? Yes. So um, is this something that there is uh, can be easily fixed? It's something that's a relatively low-cost way to solve a problem just by adding an extra step here? It uh, Well, the lights-out measures, for instance, have proved to be very... Uh, cost-friendly and because yeah. we save energy by not leaving those lights on at night. And the uh, bird-friendly design of buildings and window treatments have been uh, endorsed by a lot of architects who have incorporated, incorporated them into design and, uh, and overall just feel that uh, it's a great contribution to uh, our biodiversity and our environment. So tell us about the uh, the vote to decide which bird should be the city's official bird. Well, we have a vote. Uh, we have a poll in Hamilton and a poll going in Burlington, and they're both available on our uh, 
website or Facebook page. If you Google Bird Friendly Hamilton Burlington, you should find it. So we are asking Hamiltonians and Burlingtons to elect uh, a city bird for their city. We, have, we had a, a nomination period of about one month to make it as inclusive as possible. And we took those nominations and we shortlisted them. So there are 10 birds each suggested for Hamilton or Burlington. And the vote is on now and it's on until March 6th. And how do we vote again? Uh, simply go either to our Facebook page or our website and you will find the information there. And can you give us any hint as to front runners at this point or, or favorites? I thought you might ask that, and that would be telling, Scott. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think I'm safe to say that, as you mentioned at the start of this, the peregrine falcon is a very popular bird in Hamilton. Yeah. And I'm not sure if you're aware of, of the uh, trumpeter swans that winter mm. over at LaSalle Marina in Burlington. And yep. they've won the hearts of many Burlingtonians. So the deadline is, sorry, March? Sixth. And, of course, all they have to do is uh, Google Bird Friendly Hamilton Burlington, and you'll find the poll on how you can vote for the official bird. Now, does this actually become an official bird? How do, they find, how do you get this designation? Well, it's a community vote, and it's going to be a community bird, but we would like to take it to the councils at some point to see if they will endorse them. And may I mention that if you live, work, or study in either of the two cities, you're eligible to vote for the city bird for that municipality. And also that it's not limited to a certain age. So you can vote with your kids and make it a project. And we've also got a lesson into the school system so that uh, we're hoping the teachers will be using it to have the kids, have the students vote. Great idea. Barry Coombs with us, founding co-chair of the team Bird Friendly Hamilton Burlington. Each city looking for its official bird. Uh, just search their uh, Bird Friendly Hamilton Burlington and you can vote for yours. Barry, good luck with all this. Thanks for taking the time. Be well. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring Eric Alper in, publicist and music commentator. Uh, Gary Brooker, Procol Harum, passed away at the age of 76. Uh, band from the UK, a couple of massive, massive hits for the classic rock era. And uh, a Canadian connection, Eric Alper is with us now. Eric, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, everything is good. Is there not a more perfect song that nobody can figure out? that fits neatly in the world that nobody can figure out anymore. It's, you know, it is very bizarre that these two, especially whiter shade of pale, of, of pale and obviously conquistador uh, with the uh, Edmonton symphony orchestra, um, yeah. um, you know, such big hits and, and, you know, many uh, bands of that era had one or two, but man, they were massive. And this is an, another great example of that. Yeah. And especially because Gary had a really great career, even after and as a side project to all of the things that he was doing. He plays on Eric Clapton's Another Ticket album from 1981. He played on George Harrison's All Things Must Pass. He was in the film version of Evita from Andrew Lloyd Webber. And of course, now playing or recently playing with Ringo Starr's All-Star Band for many, many years uh, mm. and Bill Wyman's uh, Rhythm Kings as well. So he was just the perfect guy to have around um especially because he knew songwriting he knew how to play uh and he was the utmost professional in in every possible sense of the word 
Uh, why was this particular song, Whiter Shade of Pale, so huge? I mean, is it the is the intro, the keyboard intro, the organ, Hammond B3, I think it was? Uh, yeah. What is it about this song that stands out? Yeah, and especially because this, this was the first song by the, the group that was pretty unknown at the time, but the, hearing that classical organ part that was kind of ripped off from Bach and then it featuring some of the most weirdest, strangest lyrics of the era of the 1960s where everybody was tripping out everybody that was listening to music at least you know that was hip had long hair they spoke in in languages that um seemingly was unintelligible to the older generation so then they come up with a song like this of you know we trip the light fantastic and then just after that nobody can still figure out what it is i mean i kind of think it's it tells tells the tale of a of a one night stand gone wrong but i think it just hit so many different um different points of that hippie movement in the 60s where you needed to be a little bit strange you needed to be coloring outside of the lines in order to be a success and i think that was one of the reasons why this song still stands because nothing really has sounded like it before or since and talk about the second big hit in the Canadian Connection. Yeah, well, you know, they had a lot of, of really cool connections with, with Canada. And they actually did an album, a live album in concert with the Edmonton Symphony Orchestra. That was back in 1971. And, and it was one of the first examples of a rock group performing with classical musicians. In fact, they returned to Edmonton in the early 1990s to do the performances. So the fact that they were able to, to kind of combine classical music uh, and rock music in a big way is something that a lot of artists started to take notice of you know for sure that metallica was looking at that saying well maybe if they can do it then we can do it as well it's amazing uh how unique that sound is and if anybody tries to impersonate it immediately you can pick it up yeah you you can't fake an organ sound you know <laughs> it, 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 it it's one of those instruments where you know i it, it's funny because artists would say that the drummer might seemingly be the most important because if you don't have a tight drummer um the whole band falls apart but i think for organ it, it's it's really tough to play it well and at the right moments of it and uh and certainly you know gary was was able to do that and sing that song um and look the fact that you know, we're, he's one of these guys that you would, you, uh, you know, kind of see in the background a lot. But the fact that we're talking about him just kind of shows what an immensely popular song that was that got that second light from the big chill. And that's where yeah. I first heard it in, yeah. from that movie. And a whole new generation of people helped bring that song to 15 million sales around the world. Still one of the biggest selling singles of all time. Eric Alper with us, publicist and music commentator, talking about the life of Gary Brooker. Prokel Harum passed away at the age of 76. Eric, thanks for the time. As always, be well. You too, man. Thanks for having me. We'll talk soon. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Let's bring in Henry Jasek, professor of political science, McMaster University. He's with us now. Henry, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, I sure am, Scott. <laughs> what are your thoughts on all this? And obviously the Emergency Act is now being revoked. Uh, does that have anything to do with the fact that it was having trouble getting through the Senate because they were looking for more evidence? Well, they were. They were. Yeah, it was unclear what was going to happen. I still think uh, it would have gone through on the Senate. Uh, I just think it uh, basically this is, you know, 
he wanted a deal with the you know so there was a number of rising chorus of people saying hey you overreached uh, you you've done too much and uh and I think it was also clear when people start looking at that that in Ottawa that the the processors had been kicked out uh they've done that for a couple of days and so why do you need this act anymore and so uh you know they meet they they did there were police people saying well we have to worry about there were four camps around the city of Iowa where people had gone they were worried about them coming back in uh that you know that that's the that's what we heard from the police at that time over over the last two days but we didn't uh but i guess they decided by now they have enough powers if they if the people if the uh trucks and the other people try to come in from those camps they'll they'll head them off before they get into the city i think Henry, I, I really have, and I need, you know, I need your expert opinion on this, but I have a really hard time digesting that this was all jurisdictional confusion. I mean, this was happening on Wellington Street in, in the Parliament precinct, which is federal jurisdiction. It happened on borders, which are federal jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. I'm having a hard time digesting that this went on for three weeks because police departments, premiers, and the prime minister didn't know who was supposed to take charge. Well, uh, you know, I, I do think there was a certain amount of confusion, no, no doubt about it. But, I, you know, it was pretty clear that initially provincial and federal, you know, governments didn't want to get too much involved in this, certainly in the Ottawa thing. Uh, but then it got it quickly out of hand. I think there, there was a surprise by the tactics. The governments were not really, you know, prepared for these type of tactics. They haven't saw, didn't see them before, and so they were in a state of confusion. There's no question that uh, that uh, they were confused what was going on and how much how much force was going to be needed to get rid of those people and to stop them from coming. So. Yeah, that clearly, you know, they were unprepared. And uh, now, you know, so... So you agree that that this was just, hey, there's no law on the books or no procedure on the books if there's a protest that turns into an occupation on Parliament Hill. I have a hard time believing there's not a plan for that. What I'm not seeing or what I think happened here was the lack of anyone standing up and taking charge of it, whether it was the prime minister in the first absent in the first two weeks, whether it was the Ottawa mayor or the Ottawa police chief. And and many said of the Ottawa police chief that he was demanding uh, officers from from services and he didn't have any plan in place for this. And they said, we're not going to send you people if you don't have any plan in place. So, again, uh, you know, uh, to me, this just keeps pointing back to the prime minister not standing up and saying, OK, you do this, you do this, you do that, you do that. And here we go. Uh, I just have a hard time believing this was a jurisdictional confusion mistake. Yeah, well, I think that the in the, in the case of the uh, the Ottawa police is essentially it is interesting as it, that the police chief did stand down. And I do think there has been criticisms that he wasn't, you know, didn't really grasp the situation and and, ta- and basically you know what do you know what happened when I think happened here Henry what? nobody was willing to stop the ball from hitting the ground mm-hmm. everybody was throwing the ball to everybody else and when that person couldn't catch it everyone just let it hit the ground and be the other person's problem mm-hmm. and honestly I think that starts at the very top not my problem it's yours yeah, I mean, certainly blame avoidance, that which we, which is a fact, you know, a, a common concept we use when people don't want to 
you know, authorities don't want to be blamed when things go wrong was when in full, you know, was clearly visible. You're absolutely right. The federal government, the provincial governments didn't want to get involved in the beginning when we had the, uh, you know, the, the, they initially came in into Ottawa. And uh, the city, you know, clearly the city police force was was led in such a way that they were just basically couldn't get a handle on the situation. The other, you know, the other governments were hoping this would happen, and it became clear that the Ottawa police just couldn't handle it. And so it why didn't the prime minister? With that, though. Why didn't the Why didn't the prime minister call the emergency act then way earlier? Well, I think he would have certainly been attacked uh, for for jumping in without letting the Ottawa the Ottawa police and the provincial police, the OPP, to deal with the situation. And uh, I think that's what he was hoping, that he wouldn't have to jump in, that they would do the job. And it took, by the end of the third week, he saw that that wasn't going to happen, so he, he had to jump in. So that, that that's what I think was happening. He didn't, uh, clearly he didn't want to jump in and take charge of this situation. Can he reunite the country, uh, Henry? He said, "Fighting, we're fighting a virus, not each other, which, man, if you go back to the early stages of this protest, he was vilifying everybody that was involved. Yeah, I think he came in very hard, and I think he's been criticized for that. He didn't show any empathy. Clearly, I mean, although these people were breaking the law, a lot of them were hurting. A lot of them were in situations, economic situations during the pandemic, which, uh, you know, caused a lot of problems and stress for them and their families. Uh, you know, and, and clearly they they were very unhappy. And, and so he did, but he didn't show any sympathy for the original demonstrators. And I think... Uh, he, you know, in retrospect, he should have done that, but uh, he wasn't willing to do it. He came down hard. He used them sort of as a, as a weapon against the conservative opposition, saying, you know, the conservative opposition was, you know, not the party of law and order, was was basically taking the place of all those uh, protesters. And, of course, then once you started to see Nazi flags and Confederate flags in there, then he... And he, you know, used that to say, hey, the conservatives, you know, have, uh, you know, they're, they're in bed with these very bad protesters who have Nazi flags, Confederate flags, and they're just not law-abiding. And so, yeah, I think he, he took a hard line and he tried to make some partisan hay out of it, and I think that was a mistake. Henry Jasing with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. As always, Henry, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Okay, very good, Scott. Thank you. All right, let's bring in Dan McTagg, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP. We talk about all things political and energy related. Dan, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Thanks for having me, Scott. Uh, first of all, your thoughts on uh, the Prime Minister just held a news conference and uh, in, in stopped, pulled the, uh, the Emergencies Act before it was even uh, through the Senate. There was some rumor there that it, they were having difficulty getting it through the Senate because uh, more information was needed. Your thoughts on the, uh, the PM scrapping it all today? Well, I thought it was bizarre. Uh, he may be feeling the political pressure, apart from the idea that uh, this protest for all intents and purposes ended uh you know at the end of uh at the beginning of uh, the, the the long weekend uh but i think a lot of uh, folks may very well think that this has more to do with the uh, reading of the proverbial tea leaves yes people supported this but i don't think people support him and i think it's been pretty clear or made at least very clear that such enormous powers for the government permanent or other or temporary what would be and what constitutes the current emergency that would keep this there. So I think he had to 
move very quickly to shut this thing down. What I don't understand is that, you know, in the debate, why did he need the House of Commons? I understand the legislative side of things, but to validate the use of the act after it has been implemented uh, by the crown, by the by government. What I didn't understand is that knowing he was going to do this 36 hours ago, um, one would think that he uh, would have said, all right, call it a day. We didn't need to implement it. It's going to be done anyways. So mm. I think there's a, there's a lot in here that I think uh, he may very well be failing, uh, f- facing a significant uh, legal headwinds. Uh, yes, you know, people may understand and be uh, on the side that we have to use draconian powers, uh, the howitzer to take out a flea. But I think a lot of people also believe, uh, rightly so, civil libertarians who would never be supportive of, uh, you know, groups that may not align with them politically, saying this is a significant overreach. And it is likely to wind up uh, in our courts in several ways, including, of course, seizure of bank accounts and other things. So uh, whatever motivated the prime minister to make the decision today, uh, I think uh, he's going to be faulted for the fact that he didn't do it 36 hours ago when he knew he was going to make the decision one way or another. Uh, his, your thoughts on the statement, we're fighting a virus, not each other, when three weeks ago he was vilifying the last 10%, and that's how we got into the protest in the first place. Can he unite the country? Uh, now it's almost as if he's pretending that he didn't say what he said by <laughs> yeah. calling all those people racist and misogynistic. No, he got uh, some bad advice, and he, uh, you know, he defaulted to his usual nasty self. This is a guy that, uh, you know, if, you, if he doesn't agree with you, can be pretty nasty. I've seen that up front, close and personal with him. Uh, he'd be your f- best friend, write you wonderful letters, say you do a great job. Thank you for what you're doing. The next minute, literally uh, look at you as if he's never met you before with these, these eyes that suggest that you're his greatest mm-hmm. enemy. There's something a little weird about that, but I, I'll leave that to people to do more uh, in-depth uh, psychological analysis. My bigger concern with him uh, is uh, that if he believe these things, um, and this is this is hardly the time to sit down and start the negotiation. He should have done that well in advance, and I think he would have gone a long way at convincing you know people like myself who said I'm not with this convoy. I understand its purposes. Uh, you know, it's a great thing to see Canadians demonstrate what they want, uh, but I'm not prepared to go to the extent to which many did, which was to make it extraordinarily difficult for people in in Ottawa and other places. The prime minister could have sat down with one of his cabinet ministers, at least one of his MPs, for goodness sakes, and said, uh, maybe we should have a little discussion. At least we've tried to show a little bit of respect. Had he done so, Scott, you and I would not be having this conversation, and he would have been vindicated far more by saying, I tried, I reached out, they slapped my uh, my offer, by the olive branch to the ground, uh, and this is the way it's going to be. I think people have understood that. But what they now know is this is a prime minister who decided to be in singery, Uh, He he began the whole process uh, by name calling uh, something you just don't expect from leaders at a time when you know there's some real raw feelings in this country. We all know how it starts. We all know where it comes from. But he's the prime minister of this country. He ought to have acted like it. Uh, I watched the first 30 minutes of this news conference, then we had to go, but uh, nobody asked him why he didn't do any of this earlier, why it took three (laughs) weeks to even get to this point. You know, the, the quality of some of the journalistic questions up there has leaves a lot to be desired. There's still a lot of people playing the, you know, I'm, I'm you know, what I what my kids are called the butthurt approach by some of the journalists and, and, and in fairness to them, manhandled by the crowds that were up there it was pretty vile stuff. Uh, but rather than asking the simple question, which you and I have just discussed, uh, they've gone on a bit of a tangent there. I don't think the old Canadians are going to let 
Justin Trudeau off the hook quite the way uh, some of the media have chosen to by asking, uh, you know, effusive questions that uh, really are non-starters. The question was 36 hours ago, you could have said, no, this did need to pass through parliament. You brought the part, you know, you, you've divided our parliament. You've divided the new democratic party. You've divided the liberal party. You've divided uh, Canadians and supporters. Uh, he should have thrown in the towel 36 hours ago because he had no pretext or excuse. And in fact, the powers weren't in fact sanctioned by parliament uh, to do the things he did on the weekend or what happened at uh, the Windsor ambassador bridge uh, or what happened in Coots or what happened in Emerson. All these things took place because of effective policing, something that uh, we seem to have forgotten as part of all of this. Yes, there might've been some elements here that were, uh, that were un un unsavory, uh, that we'll find out and discover later. But did they involve national security? No, it didn't. All right. Well, I'll uh, have you back, Dan, to talk about what we were supposed to talk about. Uh, but this, of course, <laughs> breaking news today that we simply had to address. Dan McTagg with us, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, talking about the Prime Minister uh, calling off the Emergency Act. Uh, Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Hey, thanks, Scott. Cheers. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Global News continues its coverage of sex trafficking in Ontario uh, with the Journey to Justice series. Part two of the three-part series explores how Ontario's strategy to combat human trafficking has changed and profiles the story of one woman trying to navigate the system. Global's Sawyer Bogdan has more on this story. I thought that I was making a responsible decision by getting myself out of this bad situation that I was in and going to a trusted older adult. Kira, now in her late 20s, first met her trafficker when she was 12 years old in an after-school program in a city in southwestern Ontario. Being almost 40 years older than her, when she became homeless, she thought he was a person she could trust to help. Kira's name and voice have been changed in order to protect her identity. She was raped and trafficked by him when she was 17, but it would take Kira eight years to gain the courage she needed to report the abuse. It's extremely difficult to report when you have these, these blank spots in your memory because it's hard for, to get someone to believe you when you can't give explicit details or when you say, I don't remember. Her story reflects changes in the justice system, but also highlights areas that still need work. Working with Courage for Freedom and the London Abused Women's Centre, Kira says the reporting process was easier than expected. A police officer trained to deal with survivors was able to meet her at the Courage for Freedom office instead of a police station. Courage for Freedom is a not-for-profit focused on delivering frontline supports to minors who have been sexually assaulted and raising awareness about sex trafficking. Kira says while she initially felt supported speaking to police, that feeling didn't last. Late last year, she found out her trafficker was being released on bail in the same neighborhood she lived in with her children. That was extremely worrisome to me because I moved out of my hometown to the city to get away from this person and then I go and report to police and you know the system I thought was there to keep me safe it was not doing that. She tried going to police but was told there was little they could do. I got a oh we messed up it's too late now though. After news her trafficker was getting released came out Kira says there was public outcry 
that led to the guarantor willing to vouch for his release backing out and her trafficker remaining in jail. With over 60% of Canada's human trafficking cases coming from Ontario, the province has been shifting its strategy to a more victim-centered approach. Experts say the vast majority of human trafficking cases in Canada are sex trafficking related. While Ontario does have the highest number of human trafficking cases, it's also investing the most money. Director of the Provincial Anti-Human Trafficking Coordination Office, Jennifer Richardson, says the province has committed to invest $307 million from 2020 to 2025 on a new anti-human trafficking strategy. The Ontario government signaled to the rest of the country that they plan to lead in this space, that you know we do not want trafficking of children or of anyone in our province. The latest strategy involved input from survivors, Indigenous communities, law enforcement and frontline service providers. Although we're police officers and we want to move forward with prosecutions, our goal is actually to remove people from exploitive situations. And that has to be the primary goal. For Ontario Provincial Police Detective Staff Sergeant Andrew Taylor, when a victim comes forward, it's the start of a long process with the victim top of mind. Taylor says to support survivors, police make sure they have access to food, housing and other services. With further funding from the Ontario government in 2020, Taylor says they've been able to expand the number of officers working to fight sex trafficking. Instead of working in silos, we're working across jurisdictions. Working collaboratively, it means that if a Kingston officer identifies a victim and now that individual is being exploited in London, it is a much more seamless police response. There are now officers trained to address human trafficking cases in every region with partnerships from survivor support agencies and at least 20 municipalities. But agencies that work with survivors still note a general distrust in the justice system. Executive Director of the London Abused Women's Centre, Jennifer Dunn, says during the last fiscal year, they supported 820 trafficked women and girls. I would say the majority do not go through the formal process. I can tell you it's not even close to the 820. I wouldn't even suggest that it's half, to be honest with you. In 2016, the Ministry of the Attorney General started to look at a different way to prosecute human trafficking cases. Provincial Coordinator of the Ontario Human Trafficking Prosecution Team, Susan Orlando, says this was the first time they had dedicated crowns solely prosecuting sex traffickers. We formed for the first time a team of dedicated crowns in Ontario who prosecute only human trafficking matters and other offences related to the sex trade. What started as six crown attorneys dedicated to human trafficking matters has since grown to 54. Orlando says specializing allows crowns to be more skilled in fighting human trafficking cases and that there is at least one crown in every office in the province focused on human trafficking. Survivors also have supports in place to help them throughout the court process. But Dunn says while support for survivors is growing, much of the system is still reliant on victim testimony. Imagine sitting in front of somebody who has done this to you but also knows your every 
look, every facial expression, everything about you because you've been with each other for a long time. That would be unbelievably difficult and unbelievably traumatizing. When you look at sex trafficking in Canada, Indigenous women and girls are among those most at risk. A 2016 public safety report revealed that while Indigenous women only make up 4% of the Canadian population, they make up 50% of trafficking victims. Interim Administrator at the Native Women's Association of Canada's Wabanaki Resiliency Lodge, Bethany Tremblay, says six years later, this is still an accurate number. Indigenous women are overrepresented due to the colonial exploitation of Indigenous women and girls in Canada. This includes lack of acknowledgement from the Canadian government on not only the overrepresentation of Indigenous women in the human trafficking populations, but colonization as a key contributor to the overrepresentation. In 2020, the province launched the Anti-Human Trafficking Indigenous-Led Initiatives Fund to dedicate funding to Indigenous communities to design their own programming for trafficking victims. But whether it's dealing with the court system or dealing with police, Tremblay says there are clear biases in a system that's not designed to treat them fairly. Still, she says there's hope, but only if there's change on both a government and a community level. Tremblay says people need to continue learning about what's happened in the past and look at how this is impacting things in present day. Our Indigenous women, we deserve better. We absolutely deserve better. And I am hopeful that we can do better. Sawyer Bogdan, Global News. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Talking about the Prime Minister's news conference a little earlier on and more about what he didn't say rather than what he did say, uh, including uh, why this was not all done three weeks earlier, uh, why he spent the first two weeks in hiding, not even talking to anybody uh, in regard to the protest. And yet today... Uh, coming out and saying we need to fight the virus, not each other, after, of course, at the beginning of the uh, convoy, uh, vilifying the last 10% of us that, uh, or the last 10% of those that were not vaccinated, and now calling for unity. Uh, lots to talk about with Michael Tobe, columnist for Troy Media and Ludi Politics, contributor to the National Post and Washington Times, and a speechwriter, was a former speechwriter for Stephen Harper, and is with us now. Michael, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am, Scott. Hope you are, too. I'm not sure we're going to get to what we were supposed to here because there's so much happening today, Michael. But your thoughts on uh, the provoking of the Emergency Act. I understand it was having a bit of issue going through the Senate because they were looking for more evidence that it was actually needed. Uh, are right. you surprised it was called off today? Yeah, I mean, I was surprised. Well, let's put it this way. we would, I, I sensed it was temporary, and most of us sensed it was going to be a temporary measure, much like the old War Measures Act, which repl- the Emergencies Act replaced in 88 was. But at the same time, I don't think people thought that they were going to go through this whole rigmarole for only roughly two days. And it looks ridiculous. I mean, especially when the prime minister is coming out and saying that, no, he needed it extended so that he was fearful that there could be additional blockades. Then he obviously got pushback. We heard from a couple people in this caucus. But the bigger one, which you alluded to, was actually the Senate, which was going to basically go into a fairly long series of discussions in terms of the legitimacy of it, 
whether additional materials and possible explanations, etc. Uh, we lost Michael. All right, <laughs> I think we've lost Michael. Michael Tobe is with us now. Michael, sorry, go ahead. You were cutting out there. What were your What were your thoughts? No worries. I don't know where I exactly ended. Did I get to the point of where the Senate basically just pulled? Yes. Going to pull the plug him? Okay. Yeah. So, anyways, the long story short, just so we can move on to the next question. I think a lot of people are very surprised that it ended within forty eight hours, based on all the discussions, all the frustration, all the anger, rage, and in some cases, small amounts of support here and there. It's really kind of fascinating. This whole thing basically was encapsulated in 48 hours, and it just makes Justin Trudeau, who's looked pretty bad through the whole Freedom Convoy in general, it makes him look even worse now. I just have a hard time believing this was all a big jurisdictional confusion, that nobody knew who was responsible for the federal border at the uh, Ambassador Bridge. Nobody knew who was responsible for the federal property on Parliament Hill, including Wellington. Like, I just have a hard, belie- a hard time believing that this was, gee whiz, we just didn't have a plan for this. I, I mean, that's just BS, isn't it? Well, to use a very apples and oranges analogy, look at the whole nonsense with Novak Djokovic and the fact that both the states and the national governments could not figure out who had jurisdiction over certain things. Now, completely separate than this, but you're right. Unfortunately, it looks ridiculous, but there are times when governments don't seem to understand who has proper jurisdiction or what is sort of defined in an act, as it specifically states. And when that starts to happen, they have difficulty in figuring out who should move forward, who should deal with certain problems, who should be blamed for it, who should not be blamed for it. I'm not defending it, and I'm not saying that they shouldn't have had a plan and action in place, which you said, and I agree. You would think certainly when you're going to bring in something like an Emergencies Act, declaring a national emergency in the state of the country, that you would sort of know where you're heading. But again, I, you know, I guess we shouldn't be terribly surprised. It's the Liberal government. <laughs> They've operated so poorly since 2015 when they were first elected. But this will go down as probably, I think, if nothing, if nothing else, one of the worst decisions they've made and one of the biggest embarrassments that they faced. Are you disappointed, Michael, that at this point right now where here we are and the prime minister caught where he is, that the conservatives have got their pants down? They don't have a leader because they booted them or booted him out uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, how 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 what's the consequences of not having a leader at this point? Well, it's unfortunate you would like to have a leader in place. But in fairness, they do have an interim leader, Candace Bergen, who will obviously, you know, lead the fray for the party for the time being. And there are obviously other senior conservatives, including the only person thus far who has declared himself to be a candidate for the next leader of the party, that being Pierre Polyevre. There are people who can certainly speak out. It would be better if there was one person who was a permanent party leader doing it. And obviously no one could have predicted what was going to happen from the Freedom Convoy on. Mm. But again, I mean, that's the situation. You can't live in what-ifs your whole life. And you just do the best you can as things currently stand. There are more than enough in terms of conservative MPs and representatives to actually make the case for the party and take a position or stand for the political movement itself. So while not perfect, it can be done. All right, Michael, unfortunately, we've only got about 30 seconds left. But Jean Charest's name came into the mix as a possible leader for the Conservative Party of Canada. Your thoughts on that? Meaningless. Jean Charest is unfortunately nice man. He's always been a nice man. The problem is that he's not necessarily yesterday's man, but he represents yesterday's ideology in the Conservative Party. 
His mm. red Tory philosophy does appeal to a small group of people in the party, but it's not the same party that he was in, or even the federal old federal PCs that he led, as you remember, the two-man caucus with him and Elsie Wayne many years ago. If Sheree wants to run, we live in a democracy, it's certainly up to him, but I think he's just fooling himself, and anyone who backs him, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens between the old guard and the new guard, which is undoubtedly what this leadership campaign will be, but Jean Charest does not have a chance of winning. And he really, he should actually look for other things to do or possibly run for the party and maybe try to become a cabinet minister instead of trying to achieve something in the top that he's not suitable for, has not been good as a politician in the past for, federally or provincially as Quebec premier. And I think it's just a mistake on his part, but his choice to make. Uh, Canadians, I think, are just hoping for some sort of strong opposition. Michael Tobe is with us, columnist for the Troy Media, Looney Politics, contributor to National Post and the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Elliot Tepper is going to join us and talk about what is going on along the uh, Ukraine-Russian border as uh, things are developing quite quickly and uh, lots of concern about what could uh, happen in the next 24, 72 hours or such. Let's bring in Elliot Tepper. Lucky enough to have him uh, for a couple of segments here. Uh, Political Science, Carleton University, and with us now. Elliot, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, thank you. Same to you, Scott. So uh, give us a bit of an update here, Elliot. I know this is moving pretty quickly. Yesterday, uh, Russia was talking that it was supporting two breakaway regions um, and and uh, and obviously uh, going to support their actions to a breakaway from Ukraine. But what is the chance that this will turn into a full takeover of Ukraine by Russia? Uh, Biden says that it looks like it's imminent. Yes, and that's the most recent update from the White House. Is it's, they keep saying this, it looks imminent. The reality is that this is entirely in the hands and the mind of one person, of uh, Mr. Putin, because he has all the tools in his possession now to do what he wants. The question is, what does he want? What we do know is that uh, in 2014, he did, in fact, dismember Ukraine. We know that he's long thought that Ukraine was not, uh, we should go back to 2014, that's when he took uh, Crimea and also broke away two pieces on little green men. And under disguise, he broke mm. away two pieces of, of Ukraine, which we now call in, in the Donbass, which these two breakaway republics, he's just recognized as sovereign states. And we can come back to that. The question is, what does he want? And we aren't sure of that. Do you think uh, Biden uh, has any recourse at this point? Uh, the president has already said he will not go in there militarily because it's not a NATO country. Are threats and sanctions enough? Uh, because re- really, I guess what it sounds like is Biden says, we're not going to stop you. Yes, this is, a, this is the crux of the issue is that for Russia, and Mr. Putin in particular, uh, Ukraine is a core issue. For the United States, it's just one issue far away. It's not central uh, at the moment. It's not considered central to American or NATO, therefore Western and therefore our interests, Canadian interests as well. However, if uh, Mr. Putin really just wants to dismantle you, I shouldn't say just, if he proceeds to dismantle Ukraine as part of a historic mission uh, to take uh, back into Russia what he considers to be not a real state at all. He's never recognized Ukraine 
other than you know, technically, he's never seen Ukraine as a, a real state. He said so. It's a phantom state. It's really little Russia. And uh, it's, uh, there's a lot of Russian speakers there, and he thinks that he should protect them. He's broken away these, these two pieces. Now he's recognized them as part of uh, you know, separate uh, states. And here's to update ourselves. Those two sovereign people's republics have now put in writing that they want to they need Russian help and protection against Ukraine. So there's a flashpoint now on the border. We don't know, however, if that's the end of, I hate to even put it this way, would subjugating Ukraine be sufficient for his legacy, for his vision of what Russia ought to be? Or does he want to do, as he said, roll back the entire post-Cold War order, going back to 1989, removing about half of the states, that are currently NATO members from being NATO members, mm-hmm. would he continue to continue, just roll right into the Baltics, for example? So NATO is being built up, but the U.S. has made it clear it's not going to put troops on the ground. If uh, and therefore, ultimately, if push comes to shove and push is coming to shove, Ukraine really, unfortunately, is on its own. So what are the allies providing? Are they just, you know, sort of stocking up those NATO allies that are in and around Ukraine? The neighboring states, uh, the NATO allies in that region are doing two things. One is they are transferring some actual military personnel uh, to Ukraine out of their own stores. But they're also now receiving additional support from particularly the United States. And the U.S. is always going to be the one to do the heavy lifting in terms of providing lethal military support. Canada has been criticized. Why don't we do more now? We are doing some, but it's really up to the U.S. And the U.S. is really beefing up its uh, support for the NATO allies in the region to be sure that this won't just spin out of control if something, if something does happen in Ukraine. Of course, my concern is that we are in a situation where things could spin out of control. Uh, wars don't go as planned. Plans don't go as planned. I, it looks very carefully orchestrated by Mr. Putin. He seems to know what he's doing and what he wants. We don't. But uh, he seems to want to basically dismantle Ukraine and be sure it never becomes a democratic state on his border uh, aligned with the West. But uh, after that, we don't know what he wants to do, how he wants to do it, and what does that mean for the region. And, and like you mentioned, what does that say for the rest of uh, uh, of those neighboring states? If if all of a sudden he decides he's going to walk in and, and take Ukraine, why not the rest of them? Uh, does Ukraine even have a chance here, Elliot? I mean, even with this fortification from allies, uh, you know, into the NATO states and states and such, does does Ukraine stand a chance if Russia decides it wants to take it? Well, Russia will not act uh, just in the old-fashioned and traditional sense of moving its military. The, yeah. um, it will definitely use hybrid warfare. We're seeing already that there's cyber attacks on massive cyber attacks. There's disinformation campaigns. So there would be a multiple-pronged uh, approach to weakening and taking out Ukraine. Can Ukraine do something about it? Whereas uh, Biden does not want any American troops in there. It looks as if uh, Mr. Putin also would not like to have a lot of body bags being brought home from uh, as part of a Ukrainian resistance. Canada, by the way, one of the things we did and we got criticized is we did the training of some of the some of the troops there so they could, in, in fact, increase the cost. National emergency has been declared across Ukraine now. 
So the, why not for the U- why not Ukraine just join NATO? Then they'll get the help from allies. I know it's not <laughs> that easy, but what can you explain to us? Yes, uh, this is actually perhaps the proximate trigger. The long-term goal of Mr. Putin all along apparently has been: uh, we're not going to let a democratic consolidation on our border in Ukraine take hold, and we're not going to let NATO forces be at our border in Ukraine. Any any further encroachment would be a threat to us. So the um, <laughs> Ukraine said uh, and did so by putting people in the streets and overthrowing Yanukovych in 2014, overthrowing the pro-Russian, um, wasn't exactly a puppet regime, but a pro-Russian regime. The people of Ukraine said, no, we want to move closer to the West. They took to the streets to do it. But uh, there's a long process for becoming an actual formal member of NATO. Uh, Ukraine is a long way from meeting all the criteria. They were working Mm. on that. And one of the things that Mr. Putin is doing is being sure that uh, Ukraine is so distracted that even if he does nothing else, and and we think he probably will, um, they're not going, NATO is not going to be immediately in Ukraine's future. That's been made clear to, um, that's been made clear Mm. by the West, but the West is not going to say, hey, look, we, we're not, we can't close the door if states want to apply and they meet our criteria. That's an open door for NATO. And nobody's, nobody's going to tell us which states can and cannot join NATO. So it gets complicated in that fashion. Elliot, uh, at the beginning of this conversation, uh, not our conversation, but the, the discussion along the border, uh, Germany's been kind of quiet about it all because they've got a twin to pipeline there to bring energy from Russia into Germany. But now they've done something quite dramatic and spoke up and said, we're going to, we're going to shut this. It's, it's, I guess it's built, but it's not running yet. Uh, they're going to put this on hold. What's the significance of that in that pipeline? Yes, they're suspending it, putting it on hold is correct, not uh, canceling it. Well, when the, when this action just happened in terms of the uh, of Ukraine and the, and the Donbass, Biden announced, and he's put together the, an international coalition, including us, and we paralleled this announcement, that there's going to be an escalating series of sanctions. If you do this much, we're going to put one tranche. If you do more, it's going to get more and more painful. One of the surprises was that that in this initial announcement, uh, Germany did something that we're very coy about doing. Uh, New Chancellor Schultz was in Washington not long ago, and he wouldn't say, we're going to suspend this this pipeline. So what is this pipeline? Right now, uh, and this is something that's easy for us to overlook, there's a greater interdependence between Europe in all kinds of ways and Russia in all kinds of ways, and the supply of natural gas in the middle of winter is uh, critically important to uh, not just Germany, but primarily Germany and then other states. What's happened now is that a uh, pipeline, Nord Stream 1, has been carrying that gas to Europe. It goes through Ukraine and it goes through Poland and they get transit fees. They get a lot of, they get billions of dollars out of that over time. And Russia has a contract to do that by bypassing by going under the sea in the Baltics and then popping back up off Germany, you can bypass that with a, a Nord Stream 2, a separate way to deliver. And the fact that this has now been suspended by um, Germany, I suspect it was all part of the package of sanctions when the U.S. pointed out, I suspect, to Germany that once these sanctions affect, Gazprom, can't, the, the Russian gas agency won't be able to 
do the financing they have to do, you're going to be cut off anyway. So why don't you cut it off now? But it's an important symbolic step that the most powerful state in Europe has now joined in very early this uh, tranche of sanctions. Will that hurt Germany more than it will hurt Russia? There's some concern by that. And uh, we should probably talk a bit about how much of this does go circulate around oil and gas. What we know is that Russia has not succeeded in diversifying its economy. That's been called a, a nuclear-armed gas station. So <laughs> the, uh, the, their primary source of income is selling what they have, their natural resources, which they've not diversified away from successfully so far. They've got a lot of other natural resources. So what is happening right now is that the U.S. is, is saying, we will help fill the gap, Europe, don't worry about it. I think there's reason for Europe to be curious how they're going to do that with the LNG and other supplies. But one thing that has not gotten a lot of attention because we're talking about sanctions is that the sanctions have long been anticipated by Russia. Will it hurt them? They've been planning for this because the West has been announcing these sanctions all along. But February 4th, then Mr. Putin went to the Olympics, had a bilateral four-hour meeting with Xi Jinping, and mm -hmm. Xi Jinping announced that uh, yes, a new deal has been announced. Not only in 2014 did China arrange, under good terms, buying more and more of, of the gas and oil out of Russia, but now they're going to buy a whole lot more. So the sanctions squeeze on Russia in terms of closing off, in this case, Nord Stream 2. Uh, they, they've got a, a, a hmm. back door to get out of those sanctions through China. They have to build a new pipeline through Kazakhstan to do it, but, but um, they've been planning on this. We got about a minute left here, Elliot. Uh, if Ukraine does fall to Russia and Russia goes and takes the entire state, what is the fallout? What is the repercussion for the rest of the world? Let's start at the top. It's a great loss uh, for the people of Ukraine, for people who wish a democratic uh, emerging uh, country, 30 years now of independence. Uh, we wish them well. It's a humanitarian crisis. It's a blow against the in the global struggle between democracy and autocracy, autocracy wins. Uh, we just talked about China. China is going to take now another look at Taiwan, perhaps, saying, well, we too have a historic goal to achieve. Uh, mm -hmm. We have a leader in power there, Xi Jinping, who might want to be like Mr. Putin and say, I'm fulfilling our destiny. There's an enormous implications if a free and democratic society can be invaded and uh, removed from from its own volition, be basically moved from the map as a sovereign state. And that's a loss for everybody. Wow. Uh, we'll be watching. Elliot Tepper with us, political science, uh, his expertise and uh, from Carleton University. Uh, Elliot, as always, thanks so much for the time. Thank you for spending so much time with us today. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. And, and to you and everyone else. Coming up right after the NHL game, the day after, Hamilton Bulldogs are going to be hosting an outdoor game at Tim Horton Field. To talk more about all of this, Reed Duthie is with us, manager, broadcasting and communications, play-by-play -play announcer for your Hamilton Bulldogs, and is with us now. Reed, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, Scott, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to be on with you. So give us all the details of this game. Give us all the, uh, all the logistics and such. When is it? Where is it? All that sort of stuff. Monday, March 14th, 7 p.m., outdoors at Tim Horton's Field. Tickets available at Ticketmaster.ca. All the information on that is at HamiltonBulldogs.com. Uh, with the Oshawa Generals coming into town, you look at their history, the likes of Bobby Orr and Eric Lindros and John Tavares in the past for them, and 
the Hamilton Bulldogs, the 2018 OHL champions that pick up the history of the old Hamilton Tigers hockey in Hamilton back to 1919 and the original Allen Cup champions. You couldn't find two better teams to square off in this game. Reid, I got goosebumps just listening to you to describe it there. Uh, I understand you went for a tour of uh, Tim Hortons Field today with the team. What was that like, and, and how are they feeling? They must be jazzed. You know, for me, Scott, it's amazing because I grew up in Hamilton, went to school in Hamilton, graduated Mohawk. So for me, uh, being down at the stadium is nothing new. I grew up a 15-minute walk, but when you're there for this kind of event, it is something different. You do get those goosebumps. And the team was loving it. They were able to go out onto the field and see where they're going to be playing. Uh, they, they were wearing the, the heritage jerseys, the Hamilton Tiger-style jerseys that we have. Uh, the guy the smiling from ear to ear. Uh, President General Manager Steve Steos and Head Coach Jay McKee, they looked like kids in a candy shop uh, when they were staring down at the field from way up top. And they're psyched up for this. And those two guys have played in outdoor games, Steve, most recently in a, a heritage classic uh, with the Edmonton Oilers. So it's just fantastic to see what we're building here for this game. And the players are all into it. They're ready. They'd play it tomorrow if they could. <laughs> How different is it for them to play this type of game than something in a controlled arena? What sort of extra challenge does it bring? Or are there no downsides to this? Well, I think it might be a little chilly. You know, the, the nights in Hamilton uh, with some of that wind chill could, could get a little nasty. But uh, on the other side of things, when I was talking to Steve Steos today, he said to me, you know what, Reader, it's you're around this atmosphere and the, the tons of people in the stands and the feeling of it getting back to the roots of the game and what you grew up with on the outdoor rink. And you're so excited. You're so enthused to get out on the ice. And then once you get there and you get into the game, it's a game with two points on the line and it's against hmm. a rival team at a time where we're going to be pushing in the playoffs. So it's going to be almost like every other game once they get to the ice, but I'm sure as they make the walk out, it's going to be looking around and going, Oh my goodness. So you talked about the heritage jerseys, uh, shed a bit more light on that. What are they going to be wearing? It's the uh, ones that have been seen in the video. It's the gold with the black stripes, the mm -hmm. Hamilton Tigers jerseys that they won the 2018 OHL championship in. Uh, and again, this just connects back, Scott. The Hamilton Tigers played at the old Barton Street Forum, and that was the yeah. Allen Cup League team and the NHL team at the time, which is about a 15-minute walk from Tim Hortons Field. So to connect that all in one night is just amazing for the history and the present and the future of hockey in Hamilton. I couldn't think of a better way to make that happen. Not that we care, but how does Oshawa feel about this? They must be pretty excited to be about a part of this as well. Yeah, they're pumped up and ready to go. And you look at the history that I mentioned earlier about their franchise and what this is going to mean to them. And they're another team, Scott, that they're right in the thick of things in the Eastern Conference. Oshawa is a good team. The Bulldogs have been rolling, but do not count the Generals out in that Eastern Conference. They have a dangerous top six. They can play defense, and they got two goaltenders, much like the Bulldogs, that can go back and forth. Either one of them can put on a show. So Oshawa, they they look at this as trying to come in and, and uh, spoil the party for the Bulldogs while enjoying 
the great outdoors in Hamilton. So I think we are in for quite the treat on March 14th. Obviously, Reed, uh, Hamilton Bulldogs have a history here. There's core fans. But what does this do, this type of game and playing at Tim Horton Field? What does that do for exposing new fans to the product? No, I think this is huge, Scott, because these are the moments where you can bring in the new fans. It's these type of games where people get excited and people that may not traditionally come down to First Ontario Centre to watch a game. I mean, we'd love to have everybody who has the slightest interest in hockey to come down and check out the Bulldogs on a regular basis. But when you get a game at Tim Hortons Field, it's it's that you, you want to almost call it that novelty aspect of it because now people think, Ooh, outdoor hockey. I'd like to be a part of that. This could be a once in a lifetime opportunity. So you come down and check that out. And as I've always said, once you taste that OHL style, the excitement, the passion, the way these guys get up to play the game, you're going to come back for more. So if you figure that you get a big run of people who may come to their first game or may come for the first time in a long time, and they get a look at what this OHL Bulldogs team can do, they're going to be back again and again and again. It's a great jumping on point. And I think for the future of hockey fans in Hamilton, not just in the immediate, but down the road, Scott, kids who may not be traditional hockey fans may have never seen the game before, and they may be able to come out to this game and decide, hey, I'd like to put on a pair of skates and try out with a stick, and we might create new hockey players for that next generation of Hamilton Bulldogs. How do we get tickets, Reed? Ticketmaster.ca is your best friend. All the links are on HamiltonBulldogs.com. You can go right through there. Click. It's right on the top of the screen. Click through there. It'll take you right to Ticketmaster.ca, and the tickets are right at your fingertips all over Tim Horton's field. Uh, It's going to be a blast, Scott. We hope that place is as full as possible. March 14th, 7 o'clock, Oshawa Generals against the Hamilton Bulldogs. Tim Hortons Field, it's going to be a great experience. Reed Duthie with his manager, broadcasting and communications. Play-by-play announcer for your Hamilton Bulldogs. Reed, thanks so much for the time. Good luck. Scott, an absolute pleasure, and I've got goosebumps just thinking about being a part of this thing. You are the best PR guy for the Bulldogs. Uh, Good for you. Congratulations. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.